0: Jobs are weird. The whole having a job that you gotta do thing, weird. All right, so you have 24 hours in a day. Allow eight of them for sleep, please. And then you have 16. Now take eight of those, half of those, half your waking life, And spend those hours laboring, doing a relatively narrow set of tasks, at least compared to all the things that are possible to do in the world. Often, you're doing this work to make money for someone else, and then they give you back some of it, and then you repeat those tasks, do that most days of the week, do that for decades. Late in life, if you're lucky, you get to stop with the laboring. It's bizarre when you think about it. Maybe you shouldn't think about it. I don't know. This is the place where we sometimes think about stuff like that. It's depression mode. I'm John Mo. I'm glad you're here. And if you're listening at work, that's okay. It's okay with me anyway. But given how much of your life is spent at work, it makes a huge, huge difference how healthy that workplace is from a mental health standpoint. Whether it's in an office, a restaurant, a factory, whatever— Or if you work at home, how healthy the setup of your job is, that matters a lot. If it's oppressive, toxic, lifeless, if there's bullying, or if management is complacent, man, it can just suck real bad. It can exacerbate mental health problems you already have, and it can help create new ones. On the other hand, if it's healthy and positive where you work, that's wonderful. Right now in America, there seem to be a lot of that first kind of workplaces, the sucky kind. People are quitting because they just can't take it anymore. Some companies are having a hard time recruiting. Employee burnout is off the charts. It's all very unhealthy. And when things are unhealthy, sometimes that's when the Surgeon General enters the picture. I spoke with Dr. Vivek Murthy recently. He's in his second non-consecutive appointment as Surgeon General. He also served under President Obama. Dr. Morty has gained some attention over the years for speaking out about mental health, particularly on the effects of loneliness among kids and among people in general. Dr. Morty's office has announced a new framework for workplace well-being that companies, that bosses, that organizations can refer to so that they can make their workplace better healthier. The surgeon general, Dr. Vivek Murthy is here with us. Welcome to depression mode. Well, thanks so much, John. It's good to be with you. A new framework has been announced. It's not an advisory. It's a framework. Tell us what this is all about for mental health and well-being in the workplace. Well,
1: that's right, John. Well, I recently issued a surgeon general's framework on mental health and well-being in the workplace. And the reason that I issued this is I wanted to put forward a framework for how workplaces could think about investing in the mental health of their workforce. This is actually particularly important after the COVID pandemic, because many workers really struggled with their mental health during the pandemic. We know in fact that 76% of workers last year reported at least one symptom of a mental health condition. And the truth is, as people have also reevaluated how they think about what they need from work, we now have 81% of workers who are saying that they are looking for workplaces that support mental health. And so if you're a workplace out there and you're thinking about two things, one, how do I do right by my employees? But also, how do I make sure that my organization is operating at the best possible place in terms of productivity, creativity, staff retention, then it makes sense to invest in the mental health and well-being of the workplace.
0: It's so often that people see it as, oh, well, I need to choose between good mental health for my employees or an efficient and successful business. And, and it, it can be both. That's exactly right. And, you know, John, I'm so glad you pointed that out because
1: we know the most important part of a business is, is a people, it's your staff. And if they are not well, they can't provide the services and goods that as an organization you provide to the public, and we know actually now from a growing body of data that when people struggle with their mental health, it impacts their productivity in the workplace, their creativity, how they connect with others in the workplace, as well as their retention. And we know that staff turnover, productivity, losses, absenteeism, these are some of the great concerns that many workplaces have. So it turns out you can both do right by your employees and do right by your organizations by investing in mental health. And this framework lays out five key areas where workplaces can focus uh, if they want to build the culture, policies, and practices that
0: ultimately will support well-being in the workplace. Well, let's walk through what those five components are. Everybody get out your notepads.
1: <laughs> well, and the good news is that we, we you know have this online on the SurgeonGeneral.gov website. We have a multiple formats so you can digest it. We have a simple graphic to help capture all of this. But the five key components are as follows. The first is protection from harm people need to know that they're going to a safe workplace. And so prioritizing both physical and psychological safety in the workplace, normalizing and supporting mental health is also very important because we know that more than half of people say that they fear right now uh, that they can't take time off from work if they're struggling with their mental health because they're worried about stigma. They're worried about retribution. They're worried about other
0: consequences. That's the harm that you're talking about, the protection from retaliation or from being looked down on being you know losing opportunities losing a job because you've got a problem
1: that's exactly right that's exactly right and protection farmer is also about operationalizing our diversity equity inclusion and accessibility norms because if you are living with a disability if you have a background that maybe is different from folks you know around you. Maybe you come from a different racial group or you're a member of the LGBTQ community. Knowing that the environment is safe and inclusive uh, is really important because you want to know that you're not going to be put at a disadvantage, discriminated against in some way simply because of your identity. So protection from harm are critical. The second component is about connection and community. This is actually really important and often underappreciated, which is that when people have a sense of positive social interaction... Uh, positive relationships in the workplace makes a big difference in their productivity, in their overall output in the workplace. And it makes a difference in whether or not they stick around in their retention. And there are steps that workplaces can take to create cultures of inclusion, to cultivate trusted relationships within the workplace, to foster collaboration and teamwork. And I'll note that this doesn't just happen because, you know, you have a happy hour once a week or you have a quarterly company picnic.
0: Sad birthday party in the break room. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I mean, all of those things can be, you know, nice additions. But what we're finding is that you have to be often more intentional and thoughtful about how to cultivate opportunities for people to actually get to know one another beyond just their skill set as human beings, because we all have other parts of our lives, you know, that we uh, bring to work, you know, whether we like to or not. And when people understand us, see us for who we are, when we build relationships based on trust, it allows us to bring the best of ourselves to the workplace and workplaces, you know, get the most out of their, their staff as well. So that's a second area.
0: So we got protection from harm and the opportunity for connection and community. What's third? Third is work-life harmony. We know that it's never been easy
1: to find the right balance between work and the rest of your life. But during the COVID-19 pandemic, this imbalance, if you will, was really exacerbated in the lives of many people who had many more demands at work. People were worried about their kids. They were having to homeschool their kids at times early in the pandemic. They were having to worry about elderly relatives. In some cases, people were dealing with their own health struggles. And so the tension between our work and our life uh, really grew during the pandemic. And this is, I think, partly why you find more people highly attuned to work-life harmony as they think about what kind of job and workplace they want to have going forward. And workplaces can focus on this by providing more autonomy over how workers do their work by trying to increase flexibility in schedules so that people are driving towards outputs, but have a little bit more autonomy and flexibility in terms of how they actually construct their work, including where they may work from. But this is also where policies around paid leave become very important, because we know that if you've got a sick relative at home, for example, or a sick child at home, or if you yourself are ill... Being able to take the time that you need to care for yourself and your family is really important. when you don't have that time, it's incredibly stressful. And that stress takes a toll on everything in your life, including your work. And finally here, John, respecting the boundaries between our work and non-work time is essential. You know, this is what's different than 30 years ago. 30 years ago, when you left work, you left work, you know, and there weren't that many ways through which you could engage with work. But now, you know, people are connected, you know, by email. You can be texted often. There are Slack groups. There are various platforms to which people are constantly connected to work in evenings and weekends and even on vacation time.
0: You're literally lying in bed responding to emails as you drift off to sleep. And that's alarming, I think, for a lot of people. Well,
1: yes. And, you know, at some level, John, it seems like it's efficient. But what has happened is for many people, it's gotten to the point where it is no longer more efficient. In fact, it is taking away from the very important rest uh, and non-work time that you have. Because that is when you recharge, it's when you replenish. And if you're constantly connected to work, if there are no boundaries between work and family time or personal time, that takes a toll on you in the short and long term.
0: Okay. So that's three. And what is four? So four has to do with mattering
1: at work. This is about knowing that you matter and that your work matters. This is critical because all of us, whether we are scheduling a work, whether we are cleaning floors like in a school, whether we are providing advice as a consultant, whatever the work may be, it's important that we know that our work matters. And that is a a critical thing that often gets overlooked in the workplace. But making sure that we are building a culture of gratitude and recognition so people recognize how their work is connected to the mission and they see uh, the appreciation that folks have in the workplace for what they're contributing, that is essential but also engaging workers in workplace decisions is important. You wanna center the worker voice you know, in the workplace and workplace policies and programs. It's one additional way that we tell people that their work actually matters, that their input matters. And also this is important to point out that wages matter here too. One of the easiest ways to tell someone they don't matter is to not provide them with a living wage or a wage that's commensurate with the value that they are delivering. So these are all components that help people feel that they matter, that their work matters. And when they feel that way, it does a lot to help enhance uh, their sense of satisfaction and well-being, but also to enhance their contribution in the workplace.
0: Okay. So we've got protection from harm, the opportunity for connection and community, work-life harmony, purpose at work. And uh, what's the fifth of five steps here?
1: So the, the last one is opportunity for growth. We know that all of us have a need for growth as human beings. We may differ in how we want to grow and what mechanisms work best for us to learn and grow, but we all need to at some human level grow in terms of our, our skills, our outlook, the nature of our work itself. And what workplaces can do here is by offering quality training and education and mentoring by fostering just clear pathways for career advancement and making sure that there are feedback mechanisms in place in the workplace that allow for reciprocal and timely and effective feedback. These are all ways that we can help people identify opportunities for growth and actually walk down those paths and get better at their jobs and expand their skill sets. So these five areas all together, when I mean, you put them together, protection from harm, fostering a sense of connection and community at work, cultivating and and supporting work-life harmony, making sure people know that they and their work matter, and providing opportunities for growth. These are the five essentials, you know, as I think about them, the five essential elements of a framework for workplace mental health and well-being. And this is the time, John, for us to invest in this, because while the pandemic certainly highlighted the fact that people are struggling at work, and while we've seen people drop out of the workforce and reevaluate what they want from the workforce, the truth is, John, people were struggling with their mental health at work even before the pandemic. So this will give us a chance to address an issue that has been many years in the making.
0: This is important to know. Yes, our collective mental health has suffered during COVID, of course, but it was suffering before COVID as well. We were already heading down a bad path. In 2019, 52 million adults, or approximately 21% of U.S. adults, reported mental, behavioral, or emotional disorders. 20 million people aged 12 and up reported having substance use disorders. COVID was gasoline on a fire that was already burning.
2: jesse thorne on the next bullseye our annual halloween spectacular we'll interview anna fabrega from los espookies monet exchange from drag race and the great rl stein creator of goosebumps you know i don't really get too deep into the real fears it's a lot safer to do a dummy coming to life that's on the next bullseye for MaximumFun.org and npr
0: Back to my talk with Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy. So this is a a framework, and that is different from the Surgeon General warning on the side of a pack of cigarettes or an advisory. What does this actually do? Is this just a nice thing that a CEO will get and say, oh, I'll try to keep that in mind, and then go about their business? Like, what, what is the function of a framework like this?
1: Well, it's a great question, John. I'll tell you, I decided to to create an issue, this framework, in part based on feedback from workers, from employers over the last couple of years. And workers, on the one hand, were talking about the severe mental health impact, of not just the pandemic, but even in the preceding years. And employers were trying to figure out what to do about it. And it became clear at that point, that we needed to put together the best thinking on mental health and well-being in the workplace and provide that as a framework, not only for employers to be able to have a map, if you will, that they could follow to try to address and enhance well-being, but also so that workers had a framework that they could use to advocate for the kind of changes they needed in the workplace. Because too often we found what was happening in conversation is people didn't have a common framework through which to, to approach this or think about this. And so that that impacted negatively that their ability to take action uh, and in some cases many workplaces said gosh i don't know if there's anything we can do about mental health and well being isn't that a medical issue and that's where we realized gosh we really need to help people understand that the roots and contributors to mental health and well being are all around us in our workplaces in our schools in our neighborhoods in our families and so there are steps each of us can take to shape the environment in which people are living and working and if we do that we can have a really powerful impact on our mental health and well being
0: Does the basic composition of our our approach to the workplace in America in 2022 act against our public health? When you when you think that a lot of these corporations exist to make money for their shareholders, it's it's the basic sort of capitalist setup. I mean, can that ever really be in harmony with the best interests of the mental health of the people who work there?
1: Good question, John. And a couple of things I'd point out. One is that whether you are a for-profit organization, a nonprofit organization, or a government agency, what we have found is that you, if you are not investing in the mental health and well-being of your workforce, then you will be worse off in terms of all of your outcomes. Like we have seen, actually, there's good data that shows that companies that actually invested in well-being did better in terms of meeting their financial goals, but also did better overall in terms of the health and well-being of their organization of their workers themselves and so these dual goals uh really do go together there's a synergy there and that's one of the key points that we wanted to emphasize in this in this framework is that we're not having to choose between people or profits it turns out investing in people helps you with your mission with your profits and with all the other outcomes that organizations care about
0: okay we mentioned the pandemic changing a lot of things especially in regard to i think the work life harmony and you know it used to be that that phrase meant how many hours you're at the job versus how many hours you are at home and it was it was math and i guess it's still math it's a much more complicated story problem now but a lot changed during covid and a lot i think a lot of the things that we thought were necessary, that were immovable, you know, the big leased office space downtown that everybody has to commute to, a lot of that has been kind of had holes punched in it. Is this an opportunity now, now that we've shown that some things, that there are new issues, new potential problems, but also new opportunities and new things cleared out of the way? Like, is, does this give us a fresh start in a way?
1: Well, I think it certainly gives us an opportunity, John, to remake ourselves in a way that will leave us better off than before the pandemic. But if and only if we choose to take the insights and learnings from the pandemic and actually implement them and use them to shape a new workplace, a new way of of operating in the workplace. You know, when I think about this, John, every crisis, you know, as painful as it is, presents us opportunities for learning and COVID has been. No different. What it has told us about the workplace is that people have been struggling for a long time with their mental health and well-being, and that's impacting them. It's impacting their work. It's impacting how they show up, you know, for their colleagues. It's impacting how they show up for their family and their friends as well. And so, one of the things w- w- that people are waking up to, I think, all across America, is that they they want more out of their workplace when it comes to mental health and well-being. And it turns out that if if workplaces respond to that. If they think now about how they can implement the framework that we put forward, they can not only do well by their employees, but they will, again, do better as organizations. But the question is, how does that process of change get started? Well, my belief is it has to start with a dialogue between organizational leaders and their workers. This can't be a process where people disappear into a room and then present a plan. One of the things that has been missing is many workers have felt they they don't matter in the workplace, that their needs are not being reflected. And many of them just don't want that anymore. So this has to be a collaborative conversation that takes place. But one last thing that I'll mention too here, which is that for many people, COVID was a a life and death pandemic. You know, like families like mine and many others lost loved ones to COVID-19 and worried about many other loved ones during this pandemic, worried about our children, worried about many people in our life. When you go through experiences like that, it forces you to ask yourself, what really matters in life? And many workers and many people across the the country and across the world came out realizing that, you know what? Our relationships with my loved ones are really important. My time with my kids is really important. Being there for my elderly parents who are struggling with health, that's really important. People came to realize that there are a number of things in their personal life that they wanna devote more time to. And workplaces, I think, have to recognize that and say that that means really two critical things. One is, if we wanna keep those employees in the workforce, make sure they're happy and well, We have to create the flexibilities that allow them to be there for their family and friends this shouldn't be something where you have to choose between your work or being there when your mother is sick or when your child is sick like that should not be a choice that we force people to have to make although today that is still an unfortunate choice for too many people the second thing i think for workplaces to recognize is that there's actually a real opportunity here as well because when people feel more connected to family and friends when they actually have the time off from work to truly replenish and restore and renew themselves, the person who shows up at work the next day is somebody who is in a much better place to contribute to the organization, to the output, to the culture, than somebody who's exhausted, somebody who's upset at having to choose between family and work. So there's a real opportunity here, not just to respond to the realignment of priorities that some people have had during the pandemic, but to really realign what I think has been a misalignment of priorities and sort of a culture for many years in the workplace that has forced, I think, many folks to choose between their life outside of work and their life in work. The truth is, John, like we're all human beings. We don't check every personal aspect of our lives at the door when we walk into the workplace. We show up as whole beings, as whole people, and that's okay. You know, that is just part of the nature of being human. And so we just have to acknowledge that and ask ourselves, as workplaces, how can we better support people's lives in and outside of work and recognize that will allow them to do better, it turns out, in the workplace?
0: So this is a, a set of, of ideas, a framework that's being put forth, and hopefully a lot of places will read this and recognize this and, and act on it. And you are in a position where you speak on behalf of the greater public health good. What happens to the public health of our country if companies ignore this framework entirely or or act in a way counter to what you're suggesting. Let's get pessimistic for a moment, Dr. (laughs) Marthy.
1: Well, I think if people don't invest in workforce mental health and well-being, in a workplace mental health and well-being, what happens is that we will likely see a worsening of the mental health crisis that already exists in America right now. And organizations will be worse off as well. They will be less productive and they will have greater turnover and their ultimate mission and bottom lines won't be served as well either. So we'll see both workers and workplaces do worse if we don't invest in workplace mental health and well being. But I think that's a choice that we have right now. And one of the reasons I'm putting this framework forward is not only to help inform workplaces about what they can do, but to also empower workers about what they can advocate for in the workplace And, you know, we're not just putting this out. We're also talking to folks around the country about it, working with organizational associations, whether they're business associations, working with, of course, nonprofit organizations, with our partners in government at every level, federal, state, and local, to make sure that people know what this framework is and know how they can start implementing it. Because this is our chance to make change, John. And and one of my worries is if we wait too long on this, I think what will happen is that people will snap back to the, 2019 mindset and say, well, let's just go back to 2019 because everything was fine then. The truth is, things were not fine in 2019. And we have an opportunity, if we seize this moment, to create the changes we need to make sure that the the life we have going forward is better for workers, better for workplaces than what existed prior to the pandemic.
0: And then... How does this framework match up against some of those deeper problems? I mean, we've talked about some of these problems that existed before the pandemic, and I'm thinking of things like income inequality and racism and sexism and homophobia and and a lot of exploitation, a lot of things that have been with us for a long time that aren't necessarily a thing that a CEO or an HR company can can implement? Like what does this do against some of our deeper societal problems that are causing a lot of mental health issues and have been for quite some time.
1: What this does is it really shines a light on the fact that, John, there have been many stressors for people in the workplace outside of the nature of their work itself. You know, if you are, for example, a subject to discrimination on the basis of your your race or your gender or your sexual orientation, that can be an incredibly stressful experience in the workplace. If you are struggling to choose between being there for your elderly mother who's sick or showing up for work because you don't have paid leave to take off, that is incredibly stressful. If you're not paid a living wage such that you can't get food on the table for your family, that is incredibly stressful. And what we're seeing, John, is that when you look at the surveys that have been done out there, what you find is that workers across the world are reporting feeling more stressed in 2022 than they were even in 2020, and 2020 was a previous all-time high. And then look at the impact of that stress. We know that while in the short-term, sometimes short-term stress can be helpful, can elevate our level of function, can focus us. When you experience chronic stress, long-term stress, that has a very harmful effect on the body. The elevated sort of stress hormones that persist in your body when you're experiencing chronic stress, these can disrupt our sleep, they can disrupt our metabolic function, they can contribute. To the risk of chronic health conditions like high blood pressure, heart disease, obesity, cancer, and, and so on. But we also know that that chronic stress can contribute to mental and behavioral health challenges, including depression and anxiety and substance use disorders. So across the board, we see that these stressors, which have existed for a long time in the workplace, particularly around discrimination and disparities, This is our chance to address those. It's a chance to to do right, you know, and to live. In terms of building a workplace that's consistent with our values of equity and representation is also helpful when it comes to ensuring that both workers and the organizations they serve are better off.
0: Just ahead, we are in a mental health crisis and these problems were around before COVID. You know what else was around before COVID? Social media.
2: Hi, I'm Jesse Thorne, the founder of Maximum Fun, and I have a special announcement. I'm no longer embarrassed by my brother, my brother, and me. You know, for years, each new episode of this supposed advice show was a fresh insult, a depraved jumble of erection jokes, ghost humor, and frankly, this is for the best, very little actionable advice. But now, as they enter their twilight years, I'm as surprised as anyone to admit that it's gotten kind of good. Justin, Travis, and Griffin's witticisms are more refined, like a humor column in a fancy magazine, and they hardly ever say bazinga anymore. So, after you've completely finished listening to every single one of all of our other shows, why not join the McElroy Brothers every week
0: for My Brother, My Brother and Me. Back with Dr. Vivek Murthy, Surgeon General of the United States. The problems with mental health didn't start with COVID, but they do sort of track with the rise of social media, with the idea of somebody you know from junior high having a a perfect life on the beach with their well-scrubbed and well-behaved children, and you start to think how terrible you are. Or for young people, body images. Is the rise in social media a problem of mental health? Do you track it that closely from your vantage point?
1: Well, I think you're raising a question that many people have across America, John. When I travel around the country and talk to parents in particular, The number one question they have for me about mental health is whether social media is harming the mental health of their kids. And I think it's a reasonable question to ask, not just for kids, but potentially for all of us. Because when I talk to young people around the country, they tell me three things about social media. They say, number one, it makes them feel worse about themselves. And number two, it makes them feel worse about their friendships. And number three, they can't cut off of it because they feel like if they were to stop using social media, that they would be even more left out and alone than they feel right now. And keep in mind, in terms of feeling left out and alone, the rates of loneliness and isolation in our country are extraordinarily high. But the group that is suffering the most with the highest rates of loneliness are in fact young people, even as connected as they are via social media, which tells us that number one, social media is not a panacea. It's not somehow curing the challenge of loneliness and isolation in our kids. And in fact, to your point, there. are many examples of children whose lives have been made worse and whose mental health has suffered as a result of social media. Now, why might this be the case? Well, there's several reasons potentially behind this. I mean, one is we know that for many kids, they're experiencing an accelerated culture of comparison on social media. It's like comparing your average days to other people's best days. And even though you know that people are curating their images, that they're doctoring their photos, or only posting like the best part sometimes of what's happening in their life, still it can leave many people feeling worse off. But for many kids also it is overtaking and edging out, if you will, the in-person interactions that they have with you know in their life which are so absolutely essential to developing a strong and healthy mental health and well-being and so there are other reasons as well that we need to be concerned about when it comes with tech, including the fact that these platforms are often designed to pull our kids in and keep them on the platforms they're not necessarily designed for time well spent. They're designed for just time spent. Sticky, I think they call it. Yeah. You have some of the best designers in the world, you know, and technologists who are creating these platforms. And how is a 14, 15 year old child supposed to summon all of the willpower in the world to fight off and fend off these very well-developed and designed platforms and algorithms that are designed for primary reason of pulling people in and maximizing time spent. So this is not a fair fight if you will. And right now, the problem we have, John, is that, you know, I'll tell you in my house, the vast majority of products that I use and that many people use across America have to have some safety standard, you know, that they met before we were allowed to buy them on the market. I don't think we have effective safety standards for uh, social media platforms, even though billions of people are using them around the world. The second thing, though, to remember, John, is that we have a transparency problem here also when it comes to data. And you know, it's important that we know what the data tells us about the degree to which this is harming the mental health of our kids and which kids in particular are most vulnerable, what kind of solutions actually help. We don't have that data, and I believe it is really incumbent. There's a moral responsibility the companies have to share that data with the public so that we understand the full extent of the harms that may be being caused and which kids are most affected. This lack of transparency, lack of safety standards, in my mind, is a profound challenge. And I worry that we will look back on this in five years, 10 years, and see our failure to understand fully the impact of social media on our kids in particular and to address the mental health impact of these platforms as a colossal societal failure.
0: Can you, as the Surgeon General, push for an implementation of more regulation to social media to make some of this transparency possible? Like, Can, can you bug Joe Biden about this for us, please?
1: Well, listen. The job of of the Surgeon General is not to make policy or regulation, but we do work with policymakers, with stakeholders on the outside, and to help them understand what the concerns are, where their actions are that we need to take, and and where there are gaps in data that we need to fill. And certainly, I've had conversations, a number of conversations with legislators on Capitol Hill about my concerns about youth mental health, and in particular about the role that social media may be playing here. And we've had those conversations publicly as well, because here's the thing, John, this is an issue where we need everybody to stand up and take action, not only legislators on Capitol Hill to consider what they can do to ensure safety and data transparency, but this is a place where I think parents in particular have a really important role to play. Parents, and I say this as a parent myself, of two young kids, parents are really concerned about what's happening to their children. And their advocacy, their voice, is going to be critical to ensuring that we have the right policy measures in place, and making sure that we have also action taken by companies and transparency from these companies. Parents, for example, can come together right now and decide that they are going to ensure that their kids don't use, for example, social media until later, until a later age. You know that right now, thirteen is the age of use. You know through which kids are allowed to get on these platforms. But we know that many kids are getting on even earlier. You know, I had a mom who came to visit me, whose daughter had seven accounts on three different platforms. She was mercilessly bullied on these platforms and was ultimately had to receive help numerous times from mental health providers, but still kept going back to the platforms because she was pulled into them, bullied. And ultimately, she took her own life at the age of 11. Oh, my God. Sadly, I, I wish I could tell you this is the only story like this, but I have heard from so many parents who have had this experience, parents who have lost their children and who are concerned about the negative impact that social media had on the mental health and well-being of their kids. I think kids are using these platforms way too early, but one parent saying to their child, hey, you can't use any of these social media platforms until you're older is hard, unless parents are doing this together, right? Cause you don't want your kids to feel left out. But this is a place where parents organizing, where legislators examining what they can do for safety and transparency, is going to be absolutely critical and that's why i'm continuing to talk about it. i will do everything i can during my tenure to ensure that we are protecting the mental health of our kids
0: i, I want to thank you for in your career, naming loneliness as an issue. It's its something that has always stood out to me as as being just a, a really brave thing and, and concise thing. And, and I really appreciate the work that you've done on it. And I appreciate the work you're doing with this framework. So to end, you know, final question, to end on an optimistic note, I see a progress being made in the openness about talking about mental health that, that wasn't maybe there before. What other signs can we look for as progress either in the workplace or in society in general to feel like maybe we're we're getting some wins under our belt
1: well that's such a good question john and you know one of the reasons i feel very hopeful actually about the future is because i have the great privilege of meeting people and talking to folks across our country and understanding not only what their challenges are but how they're engaging in solutions And it is really inspiring, John, to see young people standing up all around our country to say, we've got to talk differently about mental health and being really open with their stories. It's been very inspiring to see young people standing up solutions on their own as well. Beyond Differences is a program I talk about often because, you know, when I talk to kids who were involved in that program, which started in California and is now spread around the country, I was so inspired to find that young people are taking it upon themselves to identify kids who may be struggling with loneliness and isolation and are bringing them in in ways that they feel comfortable in ways that are you know informed by compassion and by kindness. And that's helping inform their interactions with people even long after they leave grade school. And so whether you look at the increased openness and insight that young people have or the actions they're taking in their lives to address loneliness, isolation, and mental health more broadly, I think there are a lot of reasons to feel inspired and encouraged. I think what we have to do is to make sure the young people have a voice when it comes to shaping policy decisions and programs in their schools, but also in legislatures. We have to make sure that that we're continuing to prioritize this issue, and frankly, that we have to make sure that older generations are learning from the openness that young people have in talking about mental health, whether it's in the workplace, in the halls of legislative bodies, or or more broadly in society. So I think there are a lot of reasons to be hopeful. But I'll, I'll lastly just say this, John. To me, the issue of loneliness and isolation is a fundamental issue we've got to address as society, because it's not just a bad feeling when you feel lonely. It impacts your physical health. It impacts your mental health. It impacts your productivity in the workplace. It impacts how you do in school. It impacts your engagement in society, your civic engagement. And so if you think about our social connection, in many ways, as a fuel that allows us to show up in life, in all the different roles that we play. And when you look at the data that tells us that people are struggling with record levels of loneliness, you realize that we have to rebuild the social fabric of our country, thread by thread, relationship by relationship, community by community. And that's what we have the opportunity to do right now. And the good news is it doesn't require government action or act of Congress to rebuild the social fabric of America. It starts with us with the decisions we make about how we're going to prioritize relationships in our life it starts with the values that we choose to recenter our lives around values around kindness compassion and love these are values we all want you know to embed in our kids we want them to inform the world in which our kids grow up but making sure that those values truly are embedded in society starts with us you know and with what we, issues we choose to speak up on in the public square how we choose to treat people in our lives? Do we pause to listen or do we jump to judgment? So as big as the challenge is of stitching together the social fabric of our country, we have the power to do that right now in our lives. And if we choose to build a people-centered life, then we will make it possible to build a people-centered society. And that will ensure that my kids, that all of our kids will ultimately inherit a world in which they can
0: thrive. The Surgeon General of the United States, Dr. Vivek Murthy, thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much, John. Really good to talk to you today.
0: So we talked to the Surgeon General. That's cool. And as he said, he doesn't advise on policy. He can't write or pass laws. He can't enforce this framework for workplace well-being. He can't imprison bosses who don't follow these guidelines, sadly. But I guess to me there's a lot of hope in what he's saying for a better life at work, for everyone, for the future. The Surgeon General warning hasn't stopped people from smoking over the years, hasn't banned smoking, but it has shifted the way we think about smoking and its dangers. Dr. Morty's framework, I hope, signals a way of thinking from which employees and employers can both benefit that treating workers better is better for everyone. Next time on Depression Mode, artist and former journalist Tabitha Soren, her daughter Dixie, a college softball player, died in a car accident last year. And Tabitha was then expected to talk about her.
1: I have felt the need to come up with words when I am at a memorial for Dixie in one way or the other. I have felt like there was something to learn from her, uh, the way she lived her life.
0: What she told herself when she went up to bat, the mantra that she repeated in her head was loose and aggressive. I think that sounds like a nice template of a way to live. If people support our show, we get to keep making the show. Please let us keep making the show. If you already support the show through a financial contribution, we thank you. You are making this possible. You are helping people. If you don't yet support Depression Mode, it's easy to do. Just go to maximumfund.org/slash/join, select Depression Mode, and then find a level that works for you. Boom, boom. You're done. Only a few minutes, I promise. Be sure to hit subscribe, give us five stars, write reviews. All of that helps more people find out about the show, helps our mission of getting those conversations going. The Suicide and Crisis Lifeline is available in the United States by calling 988-988, remember that, or 1-800-273-TALK. The Crisis Text Line, also free, always available, text the word HOME to 741-741. Our electric mail address is depresshmode at MaximumFun.org. If you're on Facebook, look up our mental health discussion group, Preshies. We're on Twitter at Pod. Our Depression Mode newsletter is on Substack. Search that up. You'll find it. I'm on Twitter at John Moe. Hi, credits listeners. A girl I went to junior high with claimed that one of her ancestors invented the safety pin. Back then, it was impossible to look up whether this was true. There was no Google, no Wikipedia. But I tried to verify it just today with the internet and it still isn't possible. Walter Hunt invented the safety pin in 1849. Was he related to a girl I went to school with? I mean, maybe. It's kind of fun to not be able to know something. Depression Mode is produced by Gabe Mara. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. We got booking help from Mara Davis. Rhett Miller wrote and performed our theme song, Building Wings.
1: I'm always falling off of cliffs now Building wings on the way down I am figuring things out Building wings, building wings, building
2: Hi, I'm Angela from Seneca, South Carolina, and I just want to say that you are loved, you matter, and the world is a better place with you in it.
0: Depression Mode is a production of Maximum Fun and Papa Chick. I'm John Moe. Bye now.
1: MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.